So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 2 and verse 1. John chapter 2 in verse 1. All right. This is such a great story. I, I just have to say this, guys. I just want to say thank you for allowing me, for giving me a job that I can spend time during the week looking in depth at the Gospel of John. I mean, it is, it is amazing. I will just tell you this. It is amazing. It's invigorating. I feel like there's so much in there that is just for me that just stays on the cutting room floor that doesn't even make it into the sermon. And so there's so much in here, and I certainly hope that as we go through this, that not only are you encountering Jesus in a fresh way, but that you might see fit to just say, hey, I think that someone else needs to read the Gospel of John. And at the Fall Fest, one of the things that we're going to do um, is as everybody works their way through uh, and they come to the end, I'm there, um, I'll be dressed up. I think I'm dressing up as Gru this year. So um, I'll have my scarf on. I don't know if I'll have the nose or, you guys know Gru, Minions? All right, you guys, some of you, okay. Some of you are like, I don't know. Talk to a friend. Um, so at the end, what we're going to have is we're just going to have Gospels of John there with a big fat candy bar taped to them, but, and we give those out to the parents. This is parent-sized candy. So, um, so we'll be giving those out then, but we just, we believe that the God's word, particularly this gospel, is an invitation to come and see Jesus. And this time, this time that we're together, we, I would just say, like, if you know someone who needs to come and hear about Jesus, this is, this is a great series to invite someone to church if they are thinking about, like, what, what do I think about Jesus? Well, come and see is the idea. And we're, again, we're not inviting people. We don't invite people to church. We invite people to Jesus. That's what we're doing here this morning. So John chapter 2, verse 1, let's look at this story. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I'm just going to walk through this story and note some details. So it says that um, Cana of Galilee, this is the home. You guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Nathaniel coming to Jesus, that Philip is like, come and see. And then Jesus is like, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. And he's like, whoa, like I, my Lord, my God, like it's a whole thing. Nathaniel is from Cana. Cana is only about nine miles north of Nazareth which might be one of the reasons why Nathaniel has such a, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? There's this small town rivalry between the two. But it also explains why maybe Mary and Jesus in a, in a neighboring village are invited to a wedding of some people they know there in Cana. So the wedding, and here's the thing about weddings, and you guys, if, you, if you've heard this story before, some of these details might be a little bit of a review, and some of them might be a little new. But weddings in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish world, they were huge events in a small village like Cana or like Nazareth. They would be announced far in advance. You would have a son who was going to be getting married and he was engaged and so everybody would know this is coming. And once he finished building the room on, this, on his father's house, he finishes that room and once he's ready, like he brings all of his groomsmen and he goes out to go get his bride. Just like remember the parable in Matthew 22 of the virgins who are awake and they have the oil, give me oil for my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. You guys know the song, right? And they're waiting, they're waiting and you can imagine this processional that at, at night you have all these people and they're coming, they're coming, he's coming to get his bride. And so in, they're anticipating this, but they don't know exactly when this is happening. But this entire village would share then in the festivities. 
This was something, it was something that really, as you had a wedding, your feast, your festival, the th- this celebration, this wedding feast, would be something that would be for the whole village. And it would be something that you as a family, that you were somewhat, you were obligated to do for the town. And you would invite guests and they would come and they would bring gifts and you would provide this huge, wet, this huge wedding ceremony. Um, wedding feasts were the chief and largest corporate celebrations in villages throughout the year. So the, the, the religious festivals of like Passover, the Feast of Booths, and all that, that would happen in Jerusalem. But when you were in your village, the largest celebrations would be the wedding feasts. And they would be anticipated. There would be ample food. There would be ample meat. Meat was not a daily uh, diet. It wasn't part of the daily diet. It wasn't even necessarily part of the weekly diet. These meat was on special occasions. And so these feasts, these festivals, you would have this and there would be food, there would be meat, there would be wine. And this is what we see happening here. It's interesting, I suppose one of the things that we need to kind of step back a little bit, again, we obviously we love our wedding celebrations, right? But we might not think of them the same way. We have, we can go, you know, we can go to the store and we can have a huge 4th of July bank, uh, a barbecue or things like that. We don't always think about these wedding feasts as these full corporate village celebrations. But here's the idea, let's just take a step back into the Old Testament. When the prophets reflected on what heaven would be like. The image that came up to them was the wedding banquet. When they thought about what it was like for God to be near, what they thought about, the best thing that they thought about, the most joyful thing they could think of was the wedding banquet. And you have this image You have this image, especially in Revelation chapter 19, the ultimate coming of Jesus is described as a marriage feast. And so all we're saying is that when it says there was a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, this is the biggest event of the year in the village. It's Super Bowl Sunday in the village. I don't know. Is that that blasphemous to say? I, I think we probably get, you get the idea. Okay. So all this to say, this is the biggest event. People from other towns are invited. In some, case, in some cases, these could go on for days. Now, I've, I've heard that, there's, and they get that from in, uh, in Judges, when it talks about Samuel, he tells a riddle, and he's like, at the end of the seven days of the festival, I'll tell you. So this idea that it could go on for a full week, maybe, maybe not, but that's the idea. It could go on for days as different people arrive over time. Okay, you guys get the idea. All right, here's another little interesting tidbit here. It says, the mother of Jesus was there. What's her name? Mary. We all know that. In the Gospel of John, she is never named by name. She is only called the mother of Jesus. Okay? I don't know exactly what that means. I think probably the idea that that John is not really about calling attention to her. Also, he doesn't really name himself either. And there's actually a tradition that, obviously, at the end of the gospel, when Jesus says, um, woman, behold your son, he's talking about John, and that John and Mary, that John was going to take care of Mary. So one way or another, John's very, he knows Mary very well, and, but he's not calling attention necessarily to her. All right, so 2-3. He says, um, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says, and how you read this can really change the meaning, right? Woman, 
what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, we could read it as, woman, this does not have to do, like, that's not what he's saying, okay, everybody. Jesus is not being disrespectful. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, like, Jesus will address the woman at the well. He just calls her woman, okay? It's not disrespectful. He will actually, from the cross, he says, woman, behold your son, so these are, this is not a disrespectful thing. Actually, probably what's happening here is he's saying, um, what does this have to do with me, ma'am? Is kind of the way this would go culturally. And one of the things that we see going on here is that although Mary has raised Jesus, right, and that Jesus, she knows Jesus, and Jesus is her son, that there is something as Jesus is coming into his ministry, he's no longer under her, in her household, that she is no longer the one whose will is done here. You can imagine, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have a mom. Raise your hand, everybody. Does it ever happen that she's like, you know what? I'm just saying it would be good if you were here during this time, right? And you know what they're saying, right? And what Jesus is saying is he's, he's doing a little bit of distancing here. This is, this is a mild, a mild rebuke. Like, hey, he doesn't even say mom. He says, look, ma'am, my time has not come. And Jesus is on, Jesus is on a timetable that is not being set by Mary, but it's being set by his Father in heaven. And whose will is being done is not Mary's, but his Father in heaven. His hour has not yet come. And he says, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here's the deal. One of the things about this, um, Mary has been invited and there is, there's some sense in which Mary has some responsibilities at this wedding. Like, and perhaps we see maybe she has been, this is a family friend maybe, because if both Mary and Jesus are invited, and they're in a different village, like that they've been invited, maybe Mary has some uh, friend responsibilities. How many of you guys have been at a wedding where you're a friend, but you have some responsibilities at the wedding? And maybe she had some responsibilities around the catering, and here they, she knows before anyone else knows that they're out of wine. And so she goes to Jesus. Now here's the question that I think I was wondering, and probably you do too, when you think like, so why is Mary asking Jesus? Why is she going to Jesus? And I think the, the, the Sunday school answer that we could all get to is like, well, she just wants him to turn water into wine. Like she wants him to perform a miracle. But here's the problem with that theory, Okay. I'm not saying it's not, it, it's, not, it's not possible, but I would say this. In the Gospel of John, at the end of the chapter, it says, which, which sign is this, that he, turning water to wine? It's his first one. That, and maybe, maybe, like Jesus as a little boy is, like a, is a miracle worker, but we don't get any sense of that. Actually, there's apocryphal stories about Jesus turning, like, playing in the mud and like making a pigeon and then he goes boom and the pigeon flies away because he makes it up anyway but these are all apocryphal stories and most scholars think that they are um they're not true and i would agree with that they they're all like this kind of savant jesus and it's just kind of not this like he knows the alphabet before he is born and like when he comes out of the womb he crawls it's like no baby does that or like uh, you know the hymn that we sing the little lord jesus no crying he made no, 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 no. If Jesus was a baby, he cried, right? So like he's sinful because he's crying. So anyway, all that to say, we don't know if Jesus was a miracle worker at home with Mary before this moment. Probably, this is what I would say, okay? Jesus, 
or um, that Mary is engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph probably was older than Mary. Probably by this time, Joseph is not in the picture. It probably happens that Joseph passes away. He dies. And that Mary is a widow. And if Jesus is the, only, is, if Jesus is the oldest son in that family, then Mary, as a widow, would have leaned on him. He's known as the carpenter's son, which means he's not known as a miracle worker. He's known as the guy who works in the carpentry shop. He's a builder. And he supports the family as the man of the house by doing that. And so Mary, she's in a little bit of a pinch, whatever this is. And so she calls on him because she knows him to be, uh, to have some ingenuity and to be a problem solver and to care for her. And so she leans on him. Probably. So that's, that's my theory. I don't think she's asking for a miracle. I think she's just like, Jesus, we're in a pinch. What are we going to do? And so she then tells the, if you look down in verse, in verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So he's already said, what does this have to do with me? But she's like, okay, I'm not going to be mom. I'm just going to be one who trusts Jesus. So you servants, you servers, I should say, whatever he tells you to do, you do that. All right. So a couple things about this. Um, so Mary tells Jesus they have no wine. Uh, we talked about that. Okay, I'm, I'm off my notes, so I've got to catch up. Okay, all right. So Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. So literally what, is, what he says is, um, uh, what, what does this have to do with me? It's, it's, it's a Greek idiom, what to you and to me. Uh, in the ESV, what does this have to do with me? In the NIV, why do you involve me? In the New Revised Standard Version, it says, what concern is that to you and me? It is a mild rebuke. It's not a harsh rebuke. Um, my hour is not yet come. In the, in the Gospel of John, if you're, the NIV doesn't do this as well. They talk about my time has not yet come. Every, if you look at the ESV, you'll see this theme show up over and over and over and over again that Jesus does this. His hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. He'll say, my hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 12, there are these Gentiles who show up in Jerusalem and they're asking, we want to see Jesus. They find Philip because Philip loves introducing people to Jesus. And they say, we want to see Jesus. And so Philip goes to Jesus and says, hey, these Gentile Greeks, they want to see you. And Jesus says, my hour has come. And it's after that, we have the Last Supper, we have the Upper Room Discourse, and then that, the whole last part from chapter 13 on in the Gospel of John is the last night of Jesus' life. My hour has come. And he's talking about this time when he's going to be crucified and in this weird sense of the kingdom of God, the hour of his greatest weakness is also the hour of his glorification. My hour coming is Jesus saying, I am about to be, I'm about to show my glory. So he says, my hour has not yet come, but she says, do it however they're gonna do it. And this is where we have, so we have that interchange and then John says, all right, now some details. Look at verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. All right. John includes these details on purpose. Let's walk through what they are, okay? So these are jars that are there for purification rites. So whenever someone would, um, before they ate or before they cooked, 
they would purify, they would pour water over their hands, not quite like washing their hands, but they would pour water over their hands for purification. You can, in Israel today, you can still do that. You go into the bathrooms and they have these cups with two handles. You, you have an unpure hand. Here, here's unpure hand. And so you would pour the water on one hand and then you would grab the other handle, which is pure, and then you would pour it on your other hand and then you would put it down so you wouldn't, you wouldn't defile the water thing, thingy. And that's what they would do. They would have these purifications. So various utensils would have to be purified. Their, their, their hands would have to be purified. Jesus actually gets in trouble because his disciples don't purify their hands in some of the other stories in the Gospels. Okay? So he, these purification rites, why stone jars? Okay? I know that's what you were all thinking. You were like, these are stone jars. And you're like, I didn't even notice that. Okay, John notices it, and there's a reason. Because clay pottery... In Jewish, in Jewish rites, clay, clay pottery was hard to keep kosher. Clay was something that easily was defiled. And if you had a jar that was, that was a thrown clay pot and it, was, and it became unclean, you had to break the jar and get rid of it. But stone, the rabbis had this idea, this is according, in Leviticus chapter 11, it talks about all this stuff, but the rabbi said stone does not take on impurities the same way that clay does. And so you would have in your household, you would have this big stone water pot that you would fill with water, and then when you needed to be pure, when you needed to purify, you could just go in, dip in, and you would purify and you would do your thing. So these people had probably borrowed some from the village, and there were all these people had kind of pooled, no pun intended, pooled together. <laughs> that that is actually funny, I think. Thank you for laughing, Lisa. Um, they, they brought all their jars together. They brought these big jars together and they put them because you have, a, you have this big party and so you have a lot of people who need to get purified and so they have all these there, these stone water pots. All right, uh, here we go. So he says to fill these jars with water. Fill to the top. And so they filled them up to the brim. Now one other detail that sometimes gets missed in here because when you hear about this story, you think this is about turning water to wine. But it's not just turning water to wine. It's about turning a lot of water into a lot of wine. And so what he says here, um, uh, John gives us this detail that these are six stone water jars, each holding, and then we get this interpretation, 20 or 30 gallons. What it says is they hold two to three metretes, measures. And a liquid measure, a liquid measure, is about 40 liters. So each jar, each jar, if it's one measure, is about 40 liters, which is about 10 and a half gallons. A measure is 10 and a half gallons. Each of these jars holds about two to three measures. So you're looking at these jars, they hold about 20 to 30 gallons each. Now, This is a gallon of water. It's actually making me thirsty. All right. If you want to think about milk cartons, a milk, a gallon of milk or something like that. So this morning, I went to Smart and Final. And um, if you want to show the picture, um, that's, that's 30 gallons of water. That's 30 gallons of water. Emma took that picture. Thank you, Emma. Emma's like, why are we going in here, Dad? What are we doing? <laughs> why are we filling this up? And then we're not buying this. We're just putting it back on the shelf. We just need the picture, okay? 30 gallons. 
How many gallons are these? Six, gal- six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. So we're talking about between 120 and 180 gallons. That's 30. Five more of those shopping carts, and that's the amount of water. That's the amount of wine that Jesus makes. Jesus made a truckload of, wa- of wine. A truckload. This is not a small amount of wine. This is a lot of wine. This is six carts of that, of wine, that he is making. That's going to be important as we go on. But let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. So in 2.7, he says, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The master of the feast would have been somebody who was, um, this probably wasn't the head waiter. Some translations say the head waiter. This is probably someone that was a friend of the family that was kind of the MC of the party. The person who was kind of the master of ceremonies. The person who was kind of, as the feast went on, would say, bring out the next course, or are we ready with the next course? Let's bring it out, and then speeches and toasts and all that stuff, that's the person. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, because if you're the master of the, of the feast, you're like, all right, where's the wine? Where's the food? They didn't show him this stash. So he didn't know where this had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, that's verse 9, the master of feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good stuff for now. This isn't just the good wine. This is the good stuff, right? Not only does Jesus make a truckload of wine, he makes a truckload of really good wine. Of wine that after people had been drinking and their palates were dull, after hours, they could recognize this is special. All right, so what the heck's going on here? Is anybody wondering that? Like, other than Jesus, like, doing tricks, right? Other than Jesus, like, exercising his power to do a trick or to help somebody out, like, what is going on? Why does Jesus do this? Why is John remembering this and recording this? Why do we not get it in other gospels? Why do we get it in John? What is happening? First of all, I would say this. One of the things that we, we kind of get at in these stories is, especially miracle stories, there's like the moment, the moment of the miracle, the moment of the miracle. Do we know the moment of the miracle in this? No. You're like, it's sometime between the time that they filled the water jar and they took out some of it and they took it to the head waiter. Somewhere in there, it becomes wine. But there's no, there's no explanation. There's no like, this was the moment. This was when it all happened. It's not necessarily, obviously the shift is important, but it's not necessarily the moment that it happens. I think what's important, look at 2.10 again. It says, everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. It's not just good. It's the best stuff of the night. It's the best stuff of the feast. 
And it's not simply grape juice. Some people will say it's just grape juice, but that, that's not the point. Like, people actually get drunk on wine, and that's one of the things that he notes is like when people have had a lot, they can't really tell. And, but, but I would say this, that wine in the ancient world, that wine like as we know it today, like in a bottle of wine, that that would have been considered kind of strong drink. What they would have done is they would have usually done two parts of water to one part of wine. That was how they diluted wine in the ancient world. Probably like the, the alcohol, uh, kind of the alcoholic value of like beer is what it would be. Okay, so, but all that to say, Jesus doesn't just make grape juice. They have a word for grape juice. It's called fruit of the vine. It's called juice of the vine. It's not wine, but here it's wine. He makes wine. We, as a Biola, a Biola graduate, we would joke, because when I was at Biola, they had the, um, it was the big what would Jesus do bracelets. You guys remember those, WWJD, right? And so this question, like, what would Jesus do? Jesus would um, turn water into wine and then get kicked out of Biola right? Okay, so he makes wine. This isn't just grape juice, okay? But it's also not the same kind of what we would understand as wine today, like of the same kind of potency, but they do recognize that it is the good stuff. Why is this significant? Why wine? Well, here's the thing. If you were Jewish and you came into the land, one of the markers of God's blessing was that you would get rain on the land because you were an agrarian society, crops would then grow, it would be a good year if you got a lot of rain, crops would grow, and one of the ways that you would measure how good of a year it was, was how well your grapes grew. Because your grapes then would be turned into wine, and so every year, we do this today, every year, every wine has different vintages, right? Different years, that there's, some years are better than others, it's because the growing season, the growing, like all of the things that surround what it takes to grow and harvest uh, grapes, it went really well, which meant that it was a good year, it's a good vintage. And this idea that if, if you were, how do you measure if we're in the good times? How do you measure if God is blessing? You measure by how good the wine is. And that wine then was a symbol of joy, and rejoicing. It was a symbol of blessing. And that's why the rabbis would say, if there is no wine, there is no joy. Not because you got drunk or wasted on it. The idea was that it was a reminder that God had blessed. So bring out the wine. It's a symbol. It's something to say. And so Jesus does this thing where he turns water that's used for purification in jars that cannot be contaminated by impurity. Jesus, it's, uh, this is so awesome because the irony is great. He takes these stone water jars that can't be contaminated by impurity and ruins them by filling them up with wine. Because he's not ruining anything, is he? The, the messianic vintage has come. It has come, and it has come in truckloads. Jesus is saying, I am here bring out the wine. The Messiah is here. The year of the Lord's favor is here. I have come, and I, you don't need, this is the other thing that John's doing. He's going to kind of go through and talk about these various ways, these institutions of Judaism in the first century, and the first one he says is like, look, it's not working is the purification. He's like, look, you can purify, you can pour water over your hands all you want, and you can pour water over your body as much as you want, but it is not going to purify you. And Jesus says, look, 
I have a better way. And I'm going to make this way of purification obsolete. And I'm going to replace it with my presence and the messianic vintage. I'm going to turn water into wine. I'm going to bring the water for purification and I'm going to make it into joy. I'm here. You don't have to purify yourself. I am here. That's my responsibility. Here's another thing. It's a little side note. But in the Old Testament, who else does tricks with water? Just think for a second. Moses does tricks with water. What does Moses turn water into? Blood. Because it's a symbol of cursing that the the plagues have come. And obviously the power of God is coming. And the power of God to deliver his people, he curses the Pharaoh. He curses that. But Jesus is not turning water to blood, is he? It's not cursing. The Messiah has not come to curse. The Messiah has come to bless. And so water to wine is not just a simple trick to show the power of Jesus. This is a symbolic moment where Jesus is saying, if you want to be purified, look, you could do it this way, or you could enter into the joy of my presence. The message is here. Bring out the wine. Ah, it's so good. It's, anyway, I, the, the, the fact that he makes that much of it, too, it's not like he's like, well, I just need to make, let's just make a bottle, let's just make a gallon, and we'll like get, I'll make my point. Um, Jesus is not subtle in making his point, is he? No, let's just fill up the water jars. We'll ruin them. It doesn't matter because I'm here. There's a better way. And that's one of the things that John is going to say. Like, we're gonna, the next story we hear is about the temple, and Jesus is going to say there's a better way. And then Jesus is going to talk to Nicodemus, one of the teachers of Israel, and we're going to find out there's a better way. And then he's going to go to the Passover feast, and he's going to say, there's a better way. And then he's going to go to the Feast of Dedication, and he's going to say, there's a better way. I'm the light of the world. There's a better way. There's a better way. And Jesus is not going to be subtle in the Gospel of John about saying, there is a better way. I am here. So Jesus shows up and makes a truckload of the good stuff. And then John explains this. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, John says, okay, so (laughs) you're like, what just happened? And he says, okay, well, this is what just happened. In verse 11, he says, this is the first of his signs, if I can find this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the first thing is this. In the Gospel of John, John is going to record seven signs. And John is like, just in case you guys are keeping score at home, this is number one. Okay? This is number one. And there's going to be seven of these. And um, and it's interesting because there's two words in Greek uh, the, the synoptic gospels like to call when Jesus performs a miracle, they call it a miracle. It's a, uh, and they use the word dunamis. It's a power. It's a powerful act. But John, when he refers to one of Jesus' miracles, he doesn't call it a miracle. It's not just a powerful act. It's a sign. Powerful acts leave people in awe, and they're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Awe and amazement. Signs point. Signs point to people, right? It's like if you go out to the Southern California Edison thing out there, and you're like, I know that there's power going through that plant, right? But you don't necessarily, and you can see kind of where it's going, but if you had a, an arrow on it pointing at Taft Avenue Community Church, that's a sign, right? 
There's power. So, so there's powers and there's signs. John calls these all signs. A sign is a revelation, a disclosing of something of God. It doesn't just leave people in awe. It points to the person and character of God. It points to something. Signs of, are acts of power, sure, but they are also revealing something. They unveil that God is at work in the person of Jesus. That's going to be important. Because in the ancient world, there were all kinds of, there were actually miracle workers. There were people who would use magic to perform signs and wonders and whatnot. But this sign, this power, this miracle, is a sign saying, God is at work in Jesus. Pay attention to him. There's going to be seven of these. Water to wine. In chapter 4, the healing of the official son. Then in chapter 5, the healing of the invalid at the pool. In chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. The walking on water. The blind man being healed on the Sabbath in chapter 9. And then the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Some debate whether or not Jesus' resurrection is whether that's the seventh or, the eight or another sign. Um, anyway, I'm going to say there's seven in this, in this first part of John, and then the, the resurrection is kind of the capstone on that. So, signs. Okay. It also says that by doing this, he revealed his glory. One of the things we saw in the prologue in 114, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that it says that... Uh, uh, if we look at verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the things that we're going to see is that before this, no one has ever seen God. If you look down in verse 18, 118, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is going to reveal the glory that Moses asked to see but could not. Moses tells, ask God, God, can I see your glory? Let me see your glory. And God says, no. It'll kill you. So what God decides is I'm going to send my son. He is going to reveal my glory, not just to Moses, but to the world. And so this is the first, the first glimpse. But you notice that Jesus still does it secretly, right? His disciples see a glimmer, a bit of his glory. But the, the master of the, of the feast, he doesn't know what, the, what happens. The bridegroom doesn't even know what happens. He's like, great, all this wine, this is awesome, right? But he doesn't even know. Mary knows, the servants know, and the disciples know. But they see a bit of his glory. And what do they do? What do you do when you see the glory of God? You believe. That's what a sign, a sign is meant to lead you to believing. It's not just to leave you amazed. It's to leave you trusting that God is here and that God is at work. His disciples believed in him. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is, the point of the this is the point of this whole gospel. Many things that Jesus did, but these things have been written so that you might believe. This is the point. The gospel of John is like, I'm going to record all these signposts, all these arrows pointing to Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is a representative of God. Jesus is God's power in acting in this world. Jesus is the Messiah. The messianic vintage is here. The signposts are here. You know, Jesus shows up at a wedding where people need their hands washed and their wine refreshed, right? They need cleansing and they need joy. They need cleansing and they need joy. I think in a lot of ways that, that's the human condition, right? Where people, we, we need, if we're honest, we need, we need cleansing, we need forgiveness, and we need joy. We need the joy to live on in our lives. We don't need guilt to fuel us. We need the joy. We need cleansing and we need joy. But we live in a world, we live in a world where people would say, we don't need to be cleansed and we've got as much alcohol as we can ever produce. I mean, look, that's our world today. People would say, I don't need to be cleansed and I have plenty of booze. We've got more alcohol in in our society than ever before in human history. And yet people live with guilt and anxiety and are on a fruitless search for joy. As humans, we need cleansing and we need joy and we are in a society that says we don't need to be cleansed and we feel like we've got all kinds of alcohol. Jesus is here to say, I will cleanse you and I will give you true joy. And I will not give it, I will not just give it in portions. I'm gonna pour it out. I'm gonna make so much of it so much of it. This is the cool thing. When you hear people, when you hear people's testimony and they meet Jesus, it's never like, well, I asked Jesus into my life and like it got marginally better. Like what do you hear? When you hear someone say, look, I met Jesus, I asked him into my life, I felt like he flooded me with peace. I felt like he flooded me with joy. I feel like like this lady, Cassie, who was sharing, she's old, I never felt like I've been surrounded by so much support. It's like when you say yes to Jesus, when you meet Jesus, Jesus is like, it's time to bring out the wine. And it's time to do it in huge amounts. We're gonna pour out love. We're gonna pour out. In in Romans chapter five, it says, God has poured out his love for us in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us. God is not just like, well, I'm just gonna pour a little bit. No, 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 no. I'm gonna pour it out. I'm gonna make 180 gallons of wine. Because I know that you need joy. You need peace. You live in a world of anxiety. You live in a world where people don't know which way is up. People are so messed up. I'm going to give you joy and I'm going to give it to you in the full. In chapter 10 he says, I have come to give you life and to give it what? Just a little bit of it. I'm going to give you just a little bit at a time. No, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to the full. Because Jesus in the Gospel of John, there's no half measures. Jesus is like, when his hour comes, his hour has come. And it's time. And I would just say this. Look, if, if, you're, if you're like, look, I don't know. I don't, I've got anxiety. I don't know what to do. I'll, I know this. That ta- Well, first of all, Talking, like taking some deep breaths is good. We were just talking about this um, with some friends. Like um, if you're on the battlefield and you get a wound, you can, um, you can take care of it yourself, right? It's just a flesh wound. I can bandage myself up. But if it's somewhere you can't reach, you gotta get a buddy, right? And you get your buddy to help you bandage up. But if you're really hurt, 
you got to go to the doc. And that's kind of the way it is. If you have anxiety, maybe it is like take a couple deep breaths, do a little self-care. But maybe if you've got anxiety, you don't know, like you've got some real issues, you need to go talk to a friend. But also if you've got real anxiety, like um, you got to go, you should see a therapist as well. You could, that's a good way to do it. But I would just say this, the first step is just talking to Jesus, just putting it before Jesus. And just saying, I need, whatever this is, whatever this is at this wedding of Cana of Galilee, whatever that joy is, I need that joy. That is a great prayer to pray to Jesus. If you're like, I don't have peace, this, whatever you were given out at that wedding of Cana of Galilee, I need that. Would you give that? The messianic vintage is here. And it doesn't mean you've got to drink wine for this. Jesus is saying the pouring out is of the Spirit. The pouring out is of his love. The pouring out is of his peace. That don't be anxious about anything but but everything by prayer and petition. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard you, will guard your heart and your mind. Because Jesus is not giving in half measures. Jesus is making a truckload of peace. A truckload of joy. And he's asking us, like Mary, we're not telling Jesus what to do, we're just saying, all right, Jesus, whatever you want to do, do it. And what's awesome is Jesus is like, it's not my time, but I can do something. Isn't that cool? But it, like, it could be anything, but Jesus is like, no, I can I, Like, it's not my time, but like, all right, I can do something. I can do this. And you just think like Jesus' little something is that? We can trust him. We can trust him to give us the joy and the peace that salvation is meant to bring. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for this story. We're so grateful for Jesus. What must it have been like to be with him? Father, we pray that we would know that today, this week, what it is like to walk with Jesus. We pray, Jesus, if there's a place where you need to pour out your peace, your joy, that you would do that this week, even today, Father. Jesus, that you would would find the broken places and you would pour out your compassion, healing, your purification, your cleansing, your joy. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit as well. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We ask that you would make us mindful of your spirit. But we just want to thank you for just the beauty and abundance that you have given in your son. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.